Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. Our church's vision is to have a passion for God and compassion for people. We hope that the teachings in this podcast will encourage you as you seek to follow Christ and grow in your faith. Now, let's get into today's message. Good to be here with you this morning. Uh, my name's Clark. I'm the pastor here. And if we haven't gotten the chance to meet, love to meet with you out in the lobby uh, afterwards. Love to meet you and love to meet your family. So hopefully everybody's having a good weekend. Hopefully you're staying dry out there or on, on your way to church this morning. Well, we are continuing in a sermon series we started last week called Back to Basics. And today we're going to be talking about grace, which is the name of our church. So it's perfect. Well, I was thinking about this topic of grace, and of course, you know, I was thinking of that song that we oftentimes sing a lot in the church, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You know that hymn, and you've sung that hymn. In fact, that hymn has been recorded, did you know this? It's been recorded over 1,100 different times by American recording artists leading national public radio to call it America's most beloved song. But wouldn't it be great if we actually understood what we were singing about? Well, that's our goal this morning as we talk about the topic of grace in our series, Back to Basics. We're in a sermon series called Back to Basics. We're looking at some of the core foundational realities and principles of Christian theology. And really, nothing is more central, nothing is more foundational to the Bible's teaching and to all of Christian belief, for that matter, than the topic of grace. Like I said, we talk about grace, we teach about grace, we, we sing about it. Our church is Ritman Grace Church. It's so foundational and it's so vast, it's also easily misunderstood and misapprehended. So we want to spend some time this morning trying to get clear, clear as we can, on the nature of grace. So if you're taking notes, the message today actually has five points. Here's kind of the roadmap I want to take us on. I want to look at uh, grace defined. I want to talk about grace contrasted. I want us to see in the Bible grace illustrated. I want to and talking about grace experienced, and then finally, grace personified. So grace defined, grace contrasted, grace illustrated, grace experienced, and grace personified. That's how I want to structure our time this morning, and that's what I want us to be thinking about today. So let's start with that first point, grace defined. And let's get clear on what we mean when we say that word grace. What is grace? The simplest, the cleanest, and easiest, most theologically accurate way of defining grace. Uh, Dave mentioned it earlier. Grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. We could also say that it's undeserved generosity, as we'll find out in our uh, passage this morning. It's helpful sometimes to think about grace in contrast to a couple of different terms that we oftentimes use in the church uh, Christian circles, terms that are uh, part of our, I guess you could call it our theological lexicon. The terms I'm thinking of are the terms justice and mercy. If you think about justice and mercy, justice is getting what we 
deserve. That's justice. As opposed to mercy is not getting what we deserve. So if justice is getting what we deserve and mercy is not getting what we deserve, we could say that grace, in contrast to both justice and mercy, is getting something that we don't deserve. The first use in the Bible of the word grace, did you know, is in Genesis chapter 6, which says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them, but Noah found, what's the word? Say it with me. Favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor, I want you to notice that word is a word here that is used throughout the Old Testament to describe grace. It's the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. So that's grace defined. And when we think about grace, we're talking about God's unmerited favor. And of course, as biblical revelation progresses from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as biblical revelation unfolds, what we see is that that grace that God first showed to Noah back in Genesis uh, in the saving from the flood, that actually points us in the New Testament to the greatest expression of God's grace, which is, of course, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to save all who believe from the judgment and punishment for sin. Grace is God's unmerited favor, especially, specifically, His unmerited favor to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's grace defined. Now let's think about grace contrasted. In other words, what grace is not. Think about it this way. Think about your first job. Probably bringing back some bad memories for some of you. Think about your first work that you did. Your first employment that you had. For me personally, mine was delivering newspaper. I was a paper boy. I had a paper route in Doylestown, around the neighborhood that I grew up in. And I would start delivering newspaper. Actually, we had to like pack it all, put it together in the bag first. But after you did that, I would start delivering newspaper on my bicycle at 6 in the morning. And it would take a couple hours. And I remember putting in my first two weeks and getting that first paycheck. What a feeling. This was like circa 2003, I think. So there was direct deposit was a thing, but not a lot of people were, were doing it. So I got the paper check, and on one side of the check is the check, and the other side is that little stub that listed all of your itemized deductions. And I remember looking at that and thinking, FICA, who is FICA, and why is he taking my money? When I got that paycheck, I didn't go to my boss and say, Boss, I just want to thank you for this undeserved generosity that you've shown me. Rather, it was probably more like when I got that check, I thought to myself, yeah, it's about time I got paid around here. I've been putting in my hours delivering this newspaper. Well, if you can get your head around that, 
I say that because the opposite of grace is work, earning, merit. If grace is unmerited favor, the opposite of that is merited compensation, right? The Bible even uses this exact, this exact analogy of work or wages or payroll to help us understand grace. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, in other words, grace, but as an obligation. So when you work, what you get for your work is not grace, it's your due. It's what you deserve, it's what you earn. The Bible consistently and relentlessly contrasts grace and works. These are opposite ideas. They stand in contrast to one another. For example, in Romans chapter 11, Paul, speaking of salvation, says in verse 6, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. And then perhaps the clearest description of grace that we have in the Bible, which is a great verse to memorize, by the way, is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. One of the simplest descriptions of grace and salvation in the Bible, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Notice the strong contrast that Paul's using here. Salvation is by grace, not works. It is the gift of God, not your own doing. The contrast, the opposite of grace, is works. The Bible wants us to understand God has saved us by grace, not by our works, not by earning, not by merit. Grace that we can merit is not grace. It's something different. So Paul says, by grace you have been saved, not from yourselves, not by your works. And this is, we could go down a whole rabbit uh, hole in this, but uh, this is why the Protestant Reformation was such a big deal. This is why there's so much ink spilt in church history over the question of what is the grace of God, how do we attain it, and how it comes into our lives. Because this is a defining uh, important doctrinal distinction. There's a lot of good books you could read up on that too, by the way, but we don't have time for that. So grace defined. What is grace? It is unmerited favor. Grace is contrasted with works or with merit or with earning. So now let's move on to grace illustrated. This is where we come to the text that you heard a few minutes ago read by Duane. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn there again to Matthew chapter 20. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 20, uh, this is a story, a parable that Jesus wants us to learn something. He teaches to uh, his disciples the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Uh, breaking in at verse 1, Gospel of Matthew chapter 20, it says this. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So this is a classic method of Jesus' teaching. When you read the New Testament Gospels, what you see often, uh, Jesus would often say, the kingdom of heaven is sort of like this. Or the kingdom of God is sort of like this. 
Very classic method of Jesus' teaching. He's taking this reality called the kingdom of God, and he's connecting it to everyday, ordinary realities that we know and can understand. So he's kind of taking the cookies from the top shelf to the bottom shelf, so to say. So in this case, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He continues, he says, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. So then the text goes on to tell us that Jesus does this again, or excuse me, uh, the man in the story does this again at three in the afternoon. And some of your translations might say the ninth hour, the tenth hour. So in mine it says three in the afternoon. And so six hours after the initial workers were sent into the vineyard, and then he does this again at five in the afternoon, right? There's not much daylight left. And then he goes and he hires more people and he says, yeah, you guys come and work too and I'll give you whatever is right. So if you bounce down to verse 8 with me, notice what the text says next. It says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them was given a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have, been, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Did not you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus is illustrating something here. He's illustrating for us here the surprise. We might even call it the scandal of grace. The scandal is that God gives it freely to whom he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. And notice the laborers, what do they do? They begin to what? Grumble. Because though the master in the story gives them everything he promised, he's exactly true to his word, their inner calculus is based on works. We worked longer than those guys. We should get more. Remember, Jesus is illustrating something. Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God. And the point that Jesus is making here is this. A works-driven approach to God, a works-driven way of relating to God, a merit-based way of relating to God always leads to comparison and complaint. The question I want to ask ourselves this morning is, do we see those things in our own souls? Do we see ourselves comparing what we're getting from God to what others are getting from God? 
or complaining that God doesn't give us what we think we deserve. Listen to what Christian theologian Sinclair Ferguson has to say about this. He says, The grace of God irritates us because deep down we still think that grace should operate as a reward for, or at least recognition of, our prior faithful service. Every form of jealousy, all coveting for oneself of what God has given to others, all seeing God's distribution of gifts as relating to performance rather than his fatherly pleasure and enjoyment is infected with this. Let me just say this. If you're a Christ follower here this morning or watching online, how often do you see God's gifts to you as related to your performance? Ouch. God is blessing me. I must be doing something good. If God is not blessing me, I must be doing something wrong. Whether it's how I'm obeying or how I'm following him, how I'm performing as a Christian. But Jesus is illustrating for us this morning the scandal of grace. Grace rules out any calculation of performance. It rules out any calculation of merit. It is the undeserved, freely given, graciously bestowed generosity of our Father in heaven. So to review, we talked about grace defined. We talked about grace contrasted. We've just seen grace illustrated. Now let's look together at grace experienced. Grace experienced. It's one thing to grasp grace, to understand what it is. It's another thing to experience it. So what does it look like to really experience the grace of God? What does it look like to be really gripped and grasped by God's grace? Not just to know it theologically. I think uh, Dr. Ray Ortland says, he says it like this. He talks about four steps that brings us to Christ. And the first step he talks about that I want to share with you, is, step one is moral indifference. Moral indifference. This is where most people are. Moral indifference is the sense that we think the world is kind of my playground. I'm out for myself. I'm out for my interests, my pursuits. I'm not really concerned about what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. I'm sort of out to do whatever works for myself, whatever works for me. That's moral indifference. And most people in life live there. Step two, Dr. Ray Ortland says, moral concern. Moral concern happens when you begin to think to yourself, man, the way I'm living isn't right. The way I'm treating people isn't right. I need to make some changes. I need to get my act together. I need to start doing the right things and start living differently. Take a different course, clean some things up, and change some patterns in my life. That's moral concern. So we have moral indifference, moral concern. And step three, he calls moral despair. Moral despair. This is where you get to after you've tried to clean up your life and you've actually given it your best effort. This is where you uh, get to after you try to clean up your life, giving it your best effort. Moral despair is what happens when it breaks in on you, the reality that you actually aren't changing. It's the point when you realize, man, I have seen things in my life that I want to be a different person. I've tried to change, but I can't. 
I feel hopeless and I don't know, I don't like who I am and I feel powerless to become someone different. It's, it's thinking, man, I'm never going to be the person that I want to be. That's moral despair. And then finally, step four is gospel hope. Gospel hope, this is good news for bad people, right? Good news for bad people is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the limitless power of the Holy Spirit. And many people in the world think that Christian conversion is actually moving from step one to moving to step two. But I'm here to tell you that that is not Christian conversion. Christian conversion is moving from step three to step four. You have to get to moral despair before you can experience grace. And this is why most of us have never experienced grace, because we've never stopped before moral despair, because we don't want to feel the helplessness and the hopelessness of the reality that we can't change. So we just keep recycling back to step two, moral concern, and maybe a little bit more hard work to try to change our lives, try to change ourselves, and what happens is that we never get to the place where we just say, man, I am helpless. What else is there besides my own effort? And the Bible is concerned to get us to the place of moral despair. And good Christian teaching and preaching, good discipleship, is concerned with getting us to a place of moral despair. And the way that the Bible seeks to do this is through the law of God. God's law God's commandments, God's rules are a gracious gift that our Father gives to us to get us to a place of moral despair so that we can actually step into the experience of His grace and the cross of Jesus Christ. And the reason the Bible is so full of commands, the reason it's so full of prohibitions, the reason the Bible is so full of exhortations and rules is because it's God's way of showing us, here's the way that I intended you to live. And you are not going to be able to do that apart from my grace, my mercy, and my salvation. The Apostle Paul, in fact, reasons his way through this exact progression in Romans chapter 7. Uh, we looked at this passage a couple weeks back, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I want us to notice something. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So what Paul is saying, is this the problem that I need to be confronted with is my sin? And if it hadn't been for the law, then I wouldn't have known sin. In other words, he's saying I started out in moral indifference. Just doing what I was doing and wasn't that convicted about it. And I wasn't that convinced that I needed to really change at all. Well, Paul continues in that same passage and says, for what I would have known, for, for what I... I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. So what Paul's describing here is how the law of God moved him to moral despair. He's basically saying, I started out in moral indifference, and then I encountered the commands of God. He's specifically quoting the 10th commandment, do not covet. 
And he's saying, once I become aware that God says, do not covet, I began to say, okay, I should not covet. I need to obey that. And then he's saying, I found myself in moral despair because the more I tried not to covet, I became aware of all the things in my life driven by covetousness. And he says, sin came to life and it killed me. In other words, Paul's saying, I thought I was a pretty good person, but then I saw the law of God and I started to reckon with the reality of covetousness and I could not believe how unable I was to not covet. And then he's brought to experience the experience of God's grace. And this is how conviction of sin usually works. This is why God has given us His command to awaken us, awaken us of what He expects and what He desires of us. To help us see that left to ourselves, we will utterly fail because sin is alive and well in us. And when we need, we're going to need more than just a little help, a little exhortation. We need more than behavior modification. We need the grace of God. So here's the reality. The reality is this. It's possible that there's still many of us that are living in moral concern when we're still trying to get our lives together and get on the right track. And one of my prayers and one of the goals I hope to accomplish in this sermon series, Back to Basics, is that I'm praying that the Holy Spirit of God, that He would just move us to a place of moral despair. And it's counterintuitive on, at face value because it feels like despair is taking us into the wrong direction. And it can feel sometimes as though despair is taking us to a place that is further away from God because you already feel bad yourself. Nobody wants to feel worse. But here's the counterintuitive thing about it. You have to feel worse before you can feel better. You have to feel worse before you can feel better. Think about it this way. Okay, if you go to the doctor and you say, here's the symptoms that I have. I don't feel good. I have a temperature. I have a cough and I have a fever. And the doctor just says, oh, that's nice. Here's a bunch of drugs to make the symptoms go away. That's not a very good doctor, right? Because the goal of medicine is not just to treat the symptoms, but actually to getting down to what's wrong with you and fix that. Because in reality, despair is the path to hope. Despair is the path to hope. Conviction of sin is the path to freedom. Conviction of sin is the path to freedom. Why do you think that in the Bible, think about it, why do you think that in the Bible the prostitutes and the prodigals were more receptive to Jesus than the religious folks? It's because they're more aware of their brokenness. They're not pretending that they can make a little bit more self-effort to clean up their lives. They're aware of the fact that they would say, man, I'm broken, I'm stuck, I need help. They're the ones that Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not far from you. But to those who are still trying to clean up their lives and repair themselves, still trying to do a little bit more moral work in their souls in order to get themselves better, Jesus just consistently says, you're not getting it. You don't understand grace yet. To experience grace, we've got to come to the place of moral despair, which the Bible calls the conviction of sin. We've got to see that we are broken, helpless, flawed, alienated from God, unable to lift a finger to improve our situation. We can't do anything without the grace of God. 
Only then does the hope and grace and the good news of the gospel begin to break in fresh ways and make us sit up and take notice. So we saw grace defined. We see grace contrasted. We see grace illustrated in Matthew 20, grace experienced, and then let us finally turn to grace personified. At the core of it all, the central reality of the Christian message, the thing that we have to understand to make sense of anything that the Bible says is this. Grace is not a thing. It's a person. Grace is not a thing. It's a person. Remember we said that the word grace in the Bible is the same as the word gift. These words are synonymous. What is the gift that God has given us in the world? It's His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's grace personified. Jesus is God's gift to every morally despairing sinner who will receive Him. What gift has God given to the world? Jesus. Let's be perfectly clear. Grace is not a second chance. Grace is not a do-over. Grace is not a blank slate. Sometimes even in Christian preaching, you hear this idea of what grace means is, yeah, you've messed up, but now God's going to give you a second chance. Who are you trusting in that scenario? Yourself. It's still you. You didn't do so good the last time, but God's going to give you a second chance. We hear that sometimes, or at least it's implied. That's still just trusting in yourself. In other words, it's moral concern just being recycled. The Bible invites us to come to the end of ourselves and to receive Jesus Christ Himself, the gift of grace, the unmerited gracious gift of God for the sake of the sins of the world. Jesus is God's gift to the world. Jesus is the one who can make us new. Jesus is the one whom we're invited to reach out and receive by faith. And Jesus is offered freely by God's unmerited favor. It doesn't matter who you are. Some of you need to hear this today. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you, what you have or what you have not done. It doesn't matter what social, cultural, religious background you come from. There are no prerequisites. There's no qualifications. There's nothing you have to do. You don't have to go and clean up your life first. You don't have to go and get your act together. You don't have to do a bunch of penance to get you to the place where you are ready to receive Jesus. There's no way you can get closer to where Jesus will actually receive you. God offers the Lord Jesus Christ freely by grace to all who will receive him. And that's good news. That's the good news of the gospel. So as we begin to wind down a little bit, let me try to address two categories of people this morning. For some of us, perhaps we're practicing a Christianity that is nothing more than a recycled concern. It's the God gave me a second chance gospel, which again is still all about you trying harder. Maybe for the first time this morning, you're seeing the real nature of grace. And if that's you, if you're here 
and, and you just kind of feel like the coin dropped for you or you're watching online and that's what's happening. How wonderful, how gracious of God to bring that realization into a clearer focus for you. How wonderful and gracious of God to help us see the difference between moral concern and self-improvement and the helplessness and faith and trust of receiving God's gracious gift. So I want to invite you right now, this morning, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus is freely offered to you this morning. And you don't need to do anything other than say, I want that. If I give you a gift, what do you have to do? You just have to reach out and take it. God is giving you, He is offering you, He is making known and available to the world the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you up to this point that have been practicing a moral improvement form of Christianity, I want to invite you this morning to receive Jesus. The second audience I want to talk to this morning, let me also just briefly speak to those of you who have a a transactional way of relating to God. For those of us, to go back to what Sinclair Ferguson said at the beginning of our time, those that think that God's gifts are related to your performance. For some of us, our functional way of relating to God is, I need to be good so that God will bless me. Or if I don't feel like God is blessing me, then I must be doing something wrong and I need to fix something. I need to change something. I need to repair something. But the way of relating to God, that way of relating to God, will rob you of all the joy and freedom that God intends for you. That is not a life of freedom and joy. That's a life of doing. That's a life of tiredness. Because if it's always up to you, if God only rewards you for your performance, then you're going to feel like you're probably not performing right. And that's, that's why your life is a mess. That's why God isn't giving you or blessing you or gracing you with whatever you think that you should have. So your only answer is to hate yourself into going back into performing better and working harder. But the reality is this, that is not joy, that is not freedom, and that is not a life that's been transformed by grace. And if that's you, can I invite you as well to come humbly before the Lord Jesus and just acknowledge, like, God, I have this transactional way of seeing you, and I know that grace is true up here in my head, But in my heart and in my soul, I have this tendency to believe that if I do X, then you're going to do Y. So say, God, just help me not only to know that it's true, help me to grasp it and live in its reality. That's the life that God intends for you. That's the life that grace brings you into. Let me circle back around to this again as we wind down. We need to remember this, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Everything that we have is by virtue of the grace of God. It's God's great gift to us. The personification of His grace is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's whom we have been given. Won't you bow your heads with me and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, Your grace is amazing. We confess this morning that sometimes we relate to you based on our own performance. God, I ask that you would forgive us for that, Father, and 
God, sometimes we try to earn your blessing. I ask that you would help us to turn from that false way of thinking as well. I ask that you would remind us that you freely give Christ to all sinners who will receive him. God, remind us that all of your fatherly blessings come to us in and through Christ, not based on our merit, but based on Jesus. Renew us in that and deliver us to joy, deliver us to freedom, deliver us to liberation and happiness, to walk with you by grace. We ask that you would renew us this morning in the experience of grace for our good, for your glory. Amen. Our church's mission is to follow God, share his truth, and be examples of the love of Jesus to all. If you would like to know more about us, you can visit our website at www.ritmangrace.org or drop by anytime for one of our in-person Sunday morning worship services. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast.